This is section four of Mark Twain's Journal Writings, volume three. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From India to South Africa, The Diary of a Voyage, by Mark Twain, author of The Innocents Abroad, Adventures of Tom Sawyer, etc. Read by John Greenman. A truthful captain whom nobody would believe, and a fabling passenger whom nobody would discredit. A steamship library, perfect in its omissions. The advantages of living away from Mauritius. Barnum's purchase of Shakespeare's birthplace. 1. There are no people who are quite so vulgar as the over-refined ones. Puddenhead Wilson's New Calendar we sailed from calcutta toward the end of march stopped a day at madras two or three days in ceylon then sailed westward on a long flight for mauritius from my diary april seventh we are far abroad upon the smooth waters of the indian ocean now it is shady and pleasant and peaceful under the vast spread of the awnings and life is perfect again ideal the difference between a river and the sea is that the river looks fluid the sea solid usually looks as if you could step out and walk on it the captain has this peculiarity he cannot tell the truth in a plausible way in this he is the very opposite of the austere scot who sits midway of the table he cannot tell a lie in an unplausible way when the captain finishes a statement, the passengers glance at each other privately, as who should say, Do you believe that? When the Scot finishes one, the look says, How strange and interesting! The whole secret is in the manner and method of the two men. The captain is a little shy and diffident, and he states the simplest fact as if he were a little afraid of it while the Scot delivers himself of the most abandoned lie with such an air of stern veracity that one is forced to believe it, although one knows it isn't so. For instance, the Scot told about a pet flying fish he once owned that lived in a little fountain in his conservatory, and supported itself by catching birds and frogs and rats in the neighboring fields. It was plain that no one at the table doubted this statement by and by in the course of some talk about custom-house annoyances the captain brought out the following simple everyday incident but through his infirmity of style managed to tell it in such a way that it got no credence he said i went ashore at naples one voyage when i was in that trade and stood around helping my passengers for i could speak a little italian two or three times at intervals the officer asked me if I had anything dutiable about me, and seemed more and more put out and disappointed every time I told him no. Finally, a passenger whom I had helped through asked me to come out and take something. I thanked him, but excused myself, saying that I had taken a whiskey just before I came ashore. It was a fatal admission. The officer at once made me pay sixpence import duty on the whiskey just from ship to shore, you see, and he fined me five pounds for not declaring the goods, another five pounds for falsely denying that I had anything dutiable about me, also five pounds for concealing the goods, 
and fifty pounds for smuggling which is the maximum penalty for unlawfully bringing in goods under the value of seven pence apenny altogether sixty-five pounds sixpence for a little thing like that the scot is always believed yet he never tells anything but lies whereas the captain is never believed although he never tells a lie so far as i can judge if he should say his uncle was a male person he would probably say it in such a way that nobody would believe it at the same time the scot could claim that he had a female uncle and not stir a doubt in anybody's mind my own luck has been curious all my literary life i never could tell a lie that anybody would doubt nor a truth that anybody would believe lots of pets on the board birds and things in these far countries the white people do seem to run remarkably to pets our host in cawnpore had a fine collection of birds the finest we saw in a private house in india and in colombo dr murray's great compound and commodious bungalow were well populated with domesticated company from the woods frisky little squirrels a ceylon mina walking sociably about the house a small green parrot that whistled a single urgent note of call without motion of its beak also chuckled a monkey in a cage on the back veranda and some more out in the trees also a number of beautiful macaws in the trees and various and sundry birds and animals of breeds not known to me but no cat yet a cat would have liked that place april ninth tea planting is the great business in ceylon now a passenger says it often pays forty per cent on the investment says there is a boom april tenth the sea is a mediterranean blue and i believe that that is about the divinest color known to nature it is strange and fine nature's lavish generosities to her creatures at least to all of them except man for those that fly she has provided a home that is nobly spacious a home which is forty miles deep and envelops the whole globe and has not an obstruction in it for those that swim she has provided a more than imperial domain which is miles deep and covers three-fifths of the globe but as for man she has cut him off with the mere odds and ends of the creation she has given him the thin skin the meagre skin which is stretched over the remaining two-fifths the naked bones stick up through it in most places on the one half of this domain he can raise snow ice sand rocks and nothing else so the valuable part of his inheritance really consists of but a single fifth of the family estate and out of it he has to grub hard to get enough to keep him alive and provide kings and soldiers and powder to extend the blessings of civilization with yet man in his simplicity and complacency and inability to cipher thinks nature regards him as the important member of the family in fact her favorite surely it must occur to even his dull head sometimes that she has a curious way of showing it afternoon the captain has been telling how in one of his arctic voyages it was so cold that the mate's shadow froze fast to the deck and had to be ripped loose by main strength and even then he got only about two-thirds of it back 
nobody said anything and the captain went away i think he is becoming disheartened also to be fair there is another word of praise due to this ship's library it contains no copy of the vicar of wakefield that strange menagerie of complacent hypocrites and idiots of the theatrical cheap john heroes and heroines who are always showing off of bad people who are not interesting and good people who are fatiguing a singular book not a sincere line in it and not a character that invites respect a book which is one long waste-pipe discharge of goody-goody puerilities and dreary moralities a book which is full of pathos which revolts and humor which grieves the heart there are few things in literature that are more piteous more pathetic than the celebrated humorous incident of moses and the spectacles jane austen's books too are absent from this library just that one omission alone would make a fairly good library out of a library that hadn't a book in it customs in tropic seas at five in the morning they pipe to wash down the decks and at once the ladies who are sleeping there turn out and they and their beds go below then one after another the men come up from the bath in their pajamas and walk the decks an hour or two with bare legs and bare feet coffee and fruit served the ship eat and her kitten now appear and get about their toilets next the barber comes and flays us on the breezy deck breakfast at nine thirty and the day begins i do not know how a day could be more reposeful no motion a level blue sea nothing in sight from horizon to horizon the speed of the ship furnishes a cooling breeze there is no mail to read and answer no newspapers to excite you no telegrams to fret you or fright you the world is far far away it has ceased to exist for you seemed a fading dream along in the first days has dissolved to an unreality now it is gone from your mind with all its businesses and ambitions its prosperities and disasters its exaltations and despairs its joys and griefs and cares and worries they are no concern of yours any more they have gone out of your life they are a storm which has passed and left a deep calm behind the people group themselves about the decks in their snowy white linen and read smoke sew play cards talk nap and so on in other ships the passengers are always ciphering about when they are going to arrive out in these seas it is rare very rare to hear that subject broached in other ships there is always an eager rush to the bulletin board at noon to find out what the run has been in these seas the bulletin seems to attract no interest i have seen no one visit it in thirteen days i have visited it only once then I happened to notice the figures of the day's run. On that day there happened to be talk at dinner about the speed of modern ships. I was the only passenger present who knew this ship's gait. Necessarily the Atlantic custom of betting on the ship's run is not a custom here. Nobody ever mentions it. I myself am wholly indifferent as to when we are going to get in. 
if any one else feels interested in the matter he has not indicated in my hearing if i had my way we should never get in at all this sort of sea life is charged with an indestructible charm there is no weariness no fatigue no worry no responsibility no work no depression of spirits there is nothing like this serenity this comfort this peace this deep contentment to be found anywhere on land if i had my way i would sail on forever and never go to live on the solid ground again one of kipling's ballads has delivered the aspect and sentiment of this bewitching sea correctly the injun ocean sets and smiles so soft so bright so bloomin blue there aren't a wave for miles and miles except the jiggle from the screw april fourteenth it turns out that the astronomical apprentice worked off a section of the milky way on me for the magellan clouds a man of more experience in the business showed one of them to me last night it was small and faint and delicate and looked like the ghost of a bunch of white smoke left floating in the sky by an exploded bombshell wednesday april fifteenth mauritius arrived and anchored off port lewis two a m rugged clusters of crags and peaks green to their summits from their bases to the sea a green plain with just tilt enough to it to make the water drain off i believe it is in fifty-six east and twenty-two south a hot tropical country the green plain has an inviting look has scattering dwellings nestling among the greenery scene of the sentimental adventure of paul and virginia island under french control which means a community which depends upon quarantines for its health not upon sanitation thursday april sixteenth went ashore in the forenoon at port louis a little town but with the largest variety of nationalities and complexions we have encountered yet french english chinese arabs africans with wool blacks with straight hair east indians half whites quadroons and great varieties in costumes and colors took the train for cure pipe at one thirty two hours run gradually uphill what a contrast this frantic luxuriance of vegetation with the arid plains of india these architecturally picturesque crags and knobs and miniature mountains with the monotony of the indian dead levels a native pointed out a handsome swarthy man of grave and dignified bearing and said in an awed tone that is so-and-so has held office of one sort or another under this government for thirty-seven years he is known all over this whole island and in the other countries of the world perhaps who knows one thing is certain you can speak his name anywhere in this whole island and you will find not one grown person that has not heard it it is a wonderful thing to be so celebrated yet look at him it makes no change in him he does not even seem to know it cure pipe means pincushion or pegtown probably sixteen miles two hours by rail from port louis 
at each end of every roof and on the apex of every dormer window a wooden peg two feet high stands up in some cases its top is blunt in others the peg is sharp and looks like a toothpick the passion for this humble ornament is universal apparently there has been only one prominent event in the history of mauritius and that one didn't happen i refer to the romantic sojourn of paul and virginia here it was that story that made mauritius known to the world made the name familiar to everybody the geographical position of it to nobody a clergyman was asked to guess what was in a box on a table it was a vellum fan painted with the shipwreck and was one of virginia's wedding gifts april eighteenth this is the only country in the world where the stranger is not asked how do you like this place this is indeed a large distinction here the citizen does the talking about the country himself the stranger is not asked to help you get all sorts of information from one citizen you gather the idea that mauritius was made first and then heaven and that heaven was copied after mauritius another one tells you that this is an exaggeration that the two chief villages port louis and curepipe fall short of heavenly perfection that nobody lives in port louis except upon compulsion and that curepipe is the wettest and rainiest place in the world an english citizen said in the early part of this century mauritius was used by the french as a basis from which to operate against england's indian merchantmen so england captured the island and also the neighbor bourbon to stop that annoyance england gave bourbon back the government in london did not want any more possessions in the west indies if the government had had a better quality of geography in stock it would not have wasted bourbon in that foolish way a big war will temporarily shut up the suez canal some day and the english ships will have to go to india around the cape of good hope again then england will have to have bourbon and will take it mauritius was a crown colony until twenty years ago with a governor appointed by the crown and assisted by a council appointed by himself but pope hennessy came out as governor then and he worked hard to get a part of the council made elective and succeeded so now the whole council is french and in all ordinary matters of legislation they vote together and in the french interest not the english the english population is very slender it has no votes enough to elect a legislator half a dozen rich french families elect the legislature pope hennessy was an irishman a catholic a home ruler m p a hater of england and the english a very troublesome person and a serious encumbrance at westminster so it was decided to send him out to govern unhealthy countries in the hope that something would happen to him but nothing did the first experiment was not merely a failure it was more than a failure he proved to be more of a disease himself than any he was sent to encounter the next experiment was here the dark scheme failed again it was an off-season and there was nothing but measles here at the time pope hennessy's health was not affected he worked with the french and for the french and against the english and he made the english very tired and the french very happy and lived to have the joy of seeing the flag he served publicly hissed 
his memory is held in worshipful reverence and affection by the french it is a land of extraordinary quarantines they quarantine a ship for anything or nothing quarantine her for twenty and even thirty days they once quarantined a ship because her captain had had the smallpox when he was a boy that and because he was english the population is very small small to insignificance the majority is east indian then mongrels then negroes descendants of the slaves of the french times then french then english there was an american but he is dead or mislaid the mongrels are the result of all kinds of mixtures black and white mulatto and white quadroon and white octoroon and white and so there is every shade of complexion ebony old mahogany horse chestnut sorrel molasses candy clouded amber clear amber old ivory white new ivory white fish belly white this latter the leprous complexion frequent with the anglo-saxon long resident in tropical climates you wouldn't expect a person to be proud of being a mauritian now would you but it is so the most of them have never been out of the island and haven't read much or studied much they think the world consists of three principal countries judea france and mauritius so they are very proud of belonging to one of the three grand divisions of the globe they think that russia and germany are in england and that england does not amount to much they have heard vaguely about the united states and the equator but they think both of them are monarchies they think mount peter bot is the highest mountain in the world and if you show one of them a picture of milan cathedral he will swell up with satisfaction and say that the idea of that jungle of spires was stolen from the forest of peg-tops and toothpicks that makes the roofs of cure-pipe look so fine and prickly there is not much trade in books the newspapers educate and entertain the people mainly the latter they have two pages of large print reading matter one of them english the other french the english page is a translation of the french one the typography is super extra primitive in this quality it has not its equal anywhere there is no proofreader now he is dead where do they get matter to fill up a page in this little island lost in the wastes of the indian ocean oh madagascar they discuss madagascar and france that is the bulk then they choke up the rest with advice to the government also slurs upon the english administration the papers are all owned and edited by creoles french the language of the country is french everybody speaks it has to you have to know the french particularly mongrel french the patois spoken by tom dick and harry of the multiform complexions or you can't get along this was a flourishing country in former days for it made then and still makes the best sugar in the world but first the suez canal severed it from the world and left it out in the cold and next the best root sugar helped by bounties captured the european markets sugar is the life of mauritius and it is losing its grip its downward course was checked by the depreciation of the rupee for the planter pays wages in rupees but sells his crop for gold and the insurrection in cuba and paralyzation of the sugar industry there 
have given our prices here a life-saving lift but the outlook has nothing permanently favorable about it it takes a year to mature the canes on the high ground three and six months longer and there is always a chance that the annual cyclone will rip the profit out of the crop in recent times a cyclone took the whole crop as you may say and the island never saw a finer one some of the noblest sugar estates in the island are in deep difficulties a dozen of them are investments of english capital and the companies that own them are at work now trying to settle up and get out with a saving of half the money they put in you know in these days when a country begins to introduce the tea culture it means that its own specialty has gone back on it look at bengal look at ceylon well they've begun to introduce the tea culture here many copies of paul and virginia are sold every year in mauritius no other book is so popular here except the bible by many it is supposed to be a part of the bible all the missionaries work up their french on it when they come here to pervert the catholic mongrel it is the greatest story that was ever written about mauritius and the only one two the principal difference between a cat and a lie is that the cat has only nine lives pudd'nhead wilson's new calendar april twentieth the cyclone of eighteen ninety two killed and crippled hundreds of people it was accompanied by a deluge of rain which drowned port louis and produced a water famine quite true for it burst the reservoir and the water pipes and for a time after the flood had disappeared there was much distress from want of water this is the only place in the world where no breed of matches can stand the damp only one match in sixteen will light the roads are hard and smooth some of the compounds are spacious some of the bungalows commodious and the roadways are walled by tall bamboo hedges trim and green and beautiful and there are azalea hedges too both the white and the red i never saw that before as to healthiness i translate from today's april twentieth merchants and planters gazette from the article of a regular contributor carminge concerning the death of the nephew of a prominent citizen sad and lugubrious existence this which we lead in mauritius i believe there is no other country in the world where one dies more easily than among us the least indisposition becomes a mortal malady a simple headache develops into meningitis a cold into pneumonia and presently when we are least expecting it death is a guest in our house this daily paper has a meteorological report which tells you what the weather was day before yesterday one is never pestered by a beggar or a peddler in this town so far as i can see this is pleasantly different from india april twenty second to such as believe that the quaint product called french civilization would be an improvement upon the civilization of new guinea and the like the snatching of madagascar and the laying on of french civilization there will be fully justified but why did england allow the french to have madagascar did she respect a theft of a couple of centuries ago dear me robbery by european nations of each other's territories has never been a sin is not a sin today 
to the several cabinets the several political establishments of the world are clotheslines and a large part of the official duty of these cabinets is to keep an eye on each other's wash and grab what they can of it as opportunity offers all the territorial possessions of all the political establishments in the earth including america of course consist of pilferings from other people's wash no tribe howsoever insignificant and no nation howsoever mighty occupies a foot of land that was not stolen when the english the french and the spaniards reached america the indian tribes had been raiding each other's territorial clotheslines for ages and every acre of ground in the continent had been stolen and restolen five hundred times the english the french and the spaniards went to work and stole it all over again and when that was satisfactorily accomplished they went diligently to work and stole it from each other in europe and asia and africa every acre of ground has been stolen several millions of times a crime persevered in a thousand centuries ceases to be a crime and becomes a virtue this is the law of custom and custom supersedes all other forms of law christian governments are as frank to-day as open and above board in discussing projects for raiding each other's clotheslines as ever they were before the golden rule came smiling into this inhospitable world and couldn't get a night's lodging anywhere in one hundred and fifty years england has beneficently retired garment after garment from the indian lines until there is hardly a rag of the original wash left dangling anywhere in eight hundred years an obscure tribe of muscovite savages has risen to the dazzling position of land-robber-in-chief she found a quarter of the world hanging out to dry on a hundred parallels of latitude and she scooped in the whole wash she keeps a sharp eye on a multitude of little lines that stretch along the northern boundaries of india and every now and then she snatches a hip-rag or a pair of pajamas it is england's prospective property and russia knows it but russia cares nothing for that in fact in our day land robbery claim jumping is become a european governmental frenzy some have been hard at it in the borders of china in burma in siam and the islands of the sea and all have been at it in africa Africa has been as coolly divided up and portioned out among the gang as if they had bought it and paid for it, and now, straightway, they are beginning the old game again, to steal each other's grabbings. Germany found a vast slice of Central Africa with the English flag, and the English missionary and the English trader scattered all over it, but with certain formalities neglected, no signs up, keep off the grass, trespassers forbidden, etc., and she stepped in with a cold calm smile and put up the signs herself and swept those english pioneers promptly out of the country there is a tremendous point there it can be put into the form of a maxim get your formalities right never mind about the moralities it was an impudent thing but england had to put up with it now in the case of madagascar the formalities had originally been observed but by neglect they had fallen into desuetude ages ago england should have snatched madagascar from the french clothesline 
without an effort she could have saved those harmless natives from the calamity of french civilization and she did not do it now it is too late the signs of the time show plainly enough what is going to happen all the savage lands in the world are going to be brought under subjection to the christian governments of europe i am not sorry but glad this coming fate might have been a calamity to those savage peoples two hundred years ago but now it will in some cases be a benefaction the sooner the seizure is consummated the better for the savages the dreary and dragging ages of bloodshed and disorder and oppression will give place to peace and order and the reign of law when one considers what india was under her hindu and mohammedan rulers and what she is now when he remembers the miseries of her millions then and the protections and humanities which they enjoy now he must concede that the most fortunate thing that has ever befallen that empire was the establishment of british supremacy there the savage lands of the world are to pass to alien possession their peoples to the mercies of alien rulers let us hope and believe that they will all benefit by the change april twenty third the first year they gather shells the second year they gather shells and drink the third year they do not gather shells said to immigrants to mauritius what there is of mauritius is beautiful you have undulating wide expanses of sugar-cane a fine fresh green and very pleasant to the eye and everywhere else you have a ragged luxuriance of tropic vegetation of vivid greens of varying shades a wide tangle of underbrush with graceful tall palms lifting their plumes high above it and you have stretches of shady dense forest with limpid streams frolicking through them continually glimpsed and lost and glimpsed again in the pleasantest hide-and-seek fashion and you have some tiny mountains some quaint and picturesque groups of toy peaks and a dainty little vest-pocket matterhorn and here and there and now and then a strip of sea with a white ruffle of surf breaks into the view that is mauritius and pretty enough the details are few the massed result is charming but not imposing not riotous not exciting it is a sunday landscape perspective and the enchantments wrought by distance are wanting there are no distances there is no perspective so to speak fifteen miles as the crow flies is the usual limit of vision mauritius is a garden and a park combined it affects one's emotions as parks and gardens affect them the surface of one's spiritual deeps are pleasantly played upon the deeps themselves are not reached not stirred spaciousness remote altitudes the sense of mystery which haunts apparently inaccessible mountain domes and summits reposing in the sky these are the things which exalt the spirit and move it to see visions and dream dreams the sandwich islands remain my ideal of the perfect thing in the matter of tropical islands i would add another story to mauna loa's sixteen thousand feet if i could and make it particularly bold and steep and craggy and forbidding and snowy and i would make the volcano spout its lava floods out of its summit instead of its sides but aside from these non-essentials i have no corrections to suggest 
I hope these will be attended to. I do not wish to have to speak of it again. 3. When your watch gets out of order, you have choice of two things to do. Throw it in the fire, or take it to the watch-tinker. The former is the quickest. Puddenhead Wilson's New Calendar The Arundel Castle is the finest boat I have seen in these seas. She is thoroughly modern, and that statement covers a great deal of ground. She has the usual defect, the common defect, the universal defect, the defect that has never been missing from any ship that ever sailed. She has imperfect beds. Many ships have good beds, but no ship has very good ones. In the matter of beds, all ships have been badly edited, ignorantly edited from the beginning. The selection of the beds is given to some hearty, strong-backed, self-made man, when it ought to be given to a frail woman accustomed from girlhood to backaches and insomnia. Nothing is so rare on either side of the ocean as a perfect bed. Nothing is so difficult to make. Some of the hotels on both sides provide it, but no ship ever does or ever did. In Noah's Ark the beds were simply scandalous. Noah set the fashion, and it will endure in one degree of modification or another till the next flood. 8 a.m. Passing Isle de Bourbon. Broken up skyline of volcanic mountains in the middle. Surely it would not cost much to repair them, and it seems inexcusable neglect to leave them as they are. It seems stupid to send tired men to Europe to rest. It is no proper rest for the mind to clatter from town to town in the dust and cinders, and examine galleries and architecture, and be always meeting people, and lunching, and teeing, and dining, and receiving worrying cables and letters. And a sea voyage on the Atlantic is of no use. Voyage too short, sea too rough. The peaceful Indian and Pacific Oceans, and the long stretches of time, are the healing thing. May 2nd, A.M. A fair great ship in sight, almost the first we have seen in these weeks of lonely voyaging. Last night the burly chief engineer, middle-aged, was standing telling a spirited seafaring tale, and had reached the most exciting place where a man overboard was washing swiftly astern on the great seas, and uplifting despairing cries, everybody racing aft in a frenzy of excitement and fading hope, when the band, which had been silent a moment, began impressively its closing piece, the English national anthem. As simply as if he was unconscious of what he was doing, he stopped his story, uncovered, laid his laced cap against his breast, and slightly bent his grizzled head. The few bars finished, he put on his cap and took up his tail again as naturally as if that interjection of music had been a part of it. There was something touching and fine about it, and it was moving to reflect that he was one of a myriad, scattered over every part of the globe, who by turn were doing as he was doing every hour of the twenty-four, those awake doing it while the others slept, those impressive bars forever floating up out of the various climes never silent, and never lacking reverent listeners. All that I remember about Madagascar is that Thackeray's little Billy went up to the top of the mast, and there knelt him upon his knee, saying, 
i see jerusalem and madagascar and north and south america may third sunday fifteen or twenty africanders who will end their voyage to-day and strike for their several homes from delagoa bay to-morrow sat up singing on the after-deck in the moonlight till three a m good fun and wholesome and the songs were clean songs and some of them were hallowed by their tender associations finally in a pause a man asked if they had heard a certain old and an altogether lowly anecdote it was a discord a wet blanket the men were not in the mood for humorous dirt the songs had carried them to their homes and in spirit they sat by those far hearthstones and saw faces and heard voices other than those that were about them the poor man hadn't wit enough to see that he had blundered but asked his question again again there was no response it was embarrassing for him in his confusion he chose the wrong course did the wrong thing began the anecdote began it in a deep and hostile stillness where had been such life and stir and warm comradeship before the two rows of men sat like statues there was no movement no sound he had to go on there was no other way at least none that an animal of his caliber could think of when at last he finished his tale which is wont to fetch a crash of laughter not a ripple of sound resulted it was as if the tale had been told to dead men after what seemed a long long time somebody sighed somebody else stirred in his seat presently the men dropped into a low murmur of confidential talk each with his neighbor and the incident was closed there were indications that that man was fond of his anecdote that it was his pet his standby his shot that never missed his reputation maker but he will never tell it again no doubt he will think of it sometimes for that cannot well be helped and then he will see a picture and always the same picture the double rank of dead men the vacant deck stretching away in dimming perspective beyond them the wide desert of smooth sea all abroad the rim of the moon spying from behind a rag of black cloud the remote top of the mizzenmast shearing a zigzag path through the field of stars in the deeps of space and this soft picture will remind him of the time that he sat in the midst of it and told his poor little tale and felt so lonesome when he got through fifty indians and chinamen sleep in the big tent in the waist of the ship forward they lie side by side with no space between the former wrapped up head and all as in the indian streets the chinamen uncovered the lamp and things for opium smoking in the centre monday may fourth steaming slowly in the stupendous delagoa bay its dim arms stretching far away and disappearing on both sides it could furnish plenty of room for all the ships in the world but it is shoal the lead has given us three and one-half fathoms several times and we are drawing that lacking six inches a bald headland precipitous wall a hundred and fifty feet high very strong red color stretching a mile or so a man said it was portuguese blood battle fought here with the natives last year i think this doubtful pretty cluster of houses on the tableland above the red 
and rolling stretches of grass and groups of trees like england the portuguese have the railroad one passenger train a day to the border seventy miles then the netherlands company have it thousands of tons of freight on the shore no cover this is the portuguese all over indolence piousness poverty impotence crews of small boats and tugs all jet black woolly heads and very muscular winter the south african winter is just beginning now but nobody but an expert can tell it from summer however i am tired of summer we have had it unbroken for eleven months we spent this afternoon on shore delagoa bay a small town no sights no carriages three rickshaws but we couldn't get them apparently private these portuguese are a rich brown like some of the indians some of the blacks have the long horse-heads and very long chins of the negroes of the picture-books but most of them are exactly like the negroes of our southern states round faces flat noses good-natured and easy laughers flocks of black women passed along carrying outrageously heavy bags of freight on their heads the quiver of their leg as the foot was planted and the strain exhibited by their bodies showed what a tax upon their strength the load was they were stevedores and doing full stevedores work they were very erect when unladen from carrying weights on their heads just like the indian women it gives them a proud fine carriage sometimes one saw a woman carrying on her head a laden and top-heavy basket the shape of an inverted pyramid its top the size of a soup-plate its base the diameter of a teacup it required nice balancing and got it no bright colors yet there were a good many hindus the second-class passenger came over as usual at lights out eleven and we lounged along the spacious vague solitudes of the deck and smoked the beautiful pipe and talked he told me an incident in mr barnum's life which was evidently characteristic of that great showman in several ways this was barnum's purchase of shakespeare's birthplace a quarter of a century ago the second-class passenger was in jamrack's employ at the time and knew barnum well he said the thing began in this way one morning barnum and jamrack were in jamrack's little private snuggery back of the wilderness of caged monkeys and snakes and other commonplaces of jamrack's stock and trade refreshing themselves after an arduous stroke of business jamrack with something orthodox barnum with something heterodox for barnum was a teetotaler the stroke of business was in the elephant line jamrack had contracted to deliver to barnum in new york eighteen elephants for three hundred and sixty thousand dollars in time for the next season's opening then it occurred to mr barnum that he needed a card he suggested jumbo jamrack said he would have to think of something else jumbo couldn't be had the zoo wouldn't part with that elephant barnum said he was willing to pay a fortune for jumbo if he could get him Jamrack said it was no use to think about it, that Jumbo was as popular as the Prince of Wales, and the zoo wouldn't dare to sell him. All England would be outraged at the idea. Jumbo was an English institution. He was part of the national glory. One might as well think of buying the Nelson Monument. Barnum spoke up with vivacity and said, It's a first-rate idea. I'll buy the monument. 
Jamrak was speechless for a second. Then he said, like one ashamed, "'You caught me. I was napping. For a moment I thought you were in earnest.' Barnum said pleasantly, "'I was in earnest. I know they won't sell it, but no matter. I will not throw away a good idea for all that. All I want is a big advertisement. I will keep the thing in mind, and if nothing better turns up, I will offer to buy it. That will answer every purpose. It will furnish me a couple of columns of gratis advertising in every English and American paper for a couple of months, and give my show the biggest boom a show ever had in this world." Jamrak started to deliver a burst of admiration, but was interrupted by Barnum, who said, "'Here is a state of things. England ought to blush.' His eye had fallen upon something in the newspaper. He read it through to himself, then read it aloud. It said that the house that Shakespeare was born in at Stratford-on-Avon was falling gradually to ruin through neglect, that the room where the poet first saw the light was now serving as a butcher's shop, that all appeals to England to contribute money, the requisite sum stated, to buy and repair the house and place it in the care of salaried and trustworthy keepers, had fallen resultless. Then Barnum said, "'There's my chance.' Let Jumbo and the monument alone for the present. They'll keep. I'll buy Shakespeare's house. I'll set it up in my museum in New York, and put a glass case around it, and make a sacred thing of it. And you'll see all America flock there to worship, yes, and pilgrims from the whole world. And I'll make them take their hats off, too. In America we know how to value anything that Shakespeare's touch has made holy. You'll see." In conclusion, the S.C.P. said, That is the way the thing came about. Barnum did buy Shakespeare's house. He paid the price asked, and received the properly attested documents of sale. Then there was an explosion, I can tell you. England rose. What, the birthplace of the master genius of all the ages and all the climes, that priceless possession of Britain? to be carried out of the country like so much old lumber and set up for six-penny desecration in a Yankee show-shop. The idea was not to be tolerated for a moment. England rose in her indignation, and Barnum was glad to relinquish his prize and offer apologies. However, he stood out for a compromise. He claimed a concession. England must let him have Jumbo. And England consented, but not cheerfully. It shows how, by help of time, a story can grow, even after Barnum has had the first innings in the telling of it. Mr. Barnum told me the story himself years ago. He said that the permission to buy Jumbo was not a concession. The permission was made and the animal delivered before the public knew anything about it. Also that the securing of Jumbo was all the advertisement he needed. It produced many columns of newspaper talk free of cost, and he was satisfied. He said that if he had failed to get Jumbo he would have caused his notion of buying the Nelson Monument to be treacherously smuggled into print by some trusty friend, and after he had gotten a few hundred pages of gratuitous advertising out of it, he would have come out with a blundering obtuse but warm-hearted letter of apology, and in a postscript to it would have naively proposed to let the monument go and take Stonehenge in place of it at the same price. It was his opinion that such a letter, written with 
well-simulated asinine innocence and gush would have gotten his ignorance and stupidity an amount of newspaper abuse worth six fortunes to him and not purchasable for twice the money i knew mr barnum well and i placed every confidence in the account which he gave me of the shakespeare birthplace episode he said he found the house neglected and going to decay and he inquired into the matter and was told that many times earnest efforts had been made to raise money for its proper repair and preservation but without success he then proposed to buy it the proposition was entertained and a price named fifty thousand dollars i think but whatever it was barnum paid the money down without remark and the papers were drawn up and executed he said that it had been his purpose to set up the house in his museum keep it in repair protect it from name scribblers and other decorators and leave it by bequest to the safe and perpetual guardianship of the smithsonian institution at washington but as soon as it was found that shakespeare's house had passed into foreign hands and was going to be carried across the ocean england was stirred as no appeal from the custodians of the relic had ever stirred her before and protests came flowing in and money too to stop the outrage offers of repurchase were made offers of double the money that mr barnum had paid for the house he handed the house back and took only the sum which it had cost him but on the condition that an endowment sufficient for the future safeguarding and maintenance of the sacred relic should be raised this condition was fulfilled that was barnum's account of the episode and to the end of his days he claimed with pride and satisfaction that not england but america represented by him saved the birthplace of shakespeare from destruction at three p m may sixth the ship slowed down off the land and thoughtfully and cautiously picked her way into the snug harbor of durban south africa editor's note these chapters copyright eighteen ninety seven by olivia l clemens are from a forthcoming book by mark twain entitled following the equator and are published here by special arrangement with the american publishing company of hartford connecticut they constitute the only account of any part of mark twain's recent journey around the world that will appear in periodical form and all rights are expressly reserved the book will be sold only by subscription and its sale in new york and the vicinity is under the exclusive control of the doubleday and mcclure company end of editor's note an end of from india to south africa by mark twain read by john greenman